kind of strange because they've been selling since uh, June of 2015 uh, and Japan had very decent profit growth for most of that period. So it was leaving most behind in terms of profit growth. And I think global investors said, yeah, but we like to do our business trips in uh, in Europe, so we'll ignore Japan. And so you were certainly scratching your head and saying, well, if foreign investors aren't looking at profits, what are they looking at? What will get them uh, get them back? And uh, perhaps uh, the interest of a... Um, uh, a uh, well-known investor like Warren Buffett will be uh, a trigger to do it. Nick, thanks very much. Good to talk to you. That's Nick Smith, Japan strategist at CLSA in Tokyo. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Uh, in Tokyo, the Nikkei 225 at the moment currently down about a third of 1%. In Australia, stocks also lower there as well. The ASX 200 is off 1.8%. Uh, looks like the Hang Seng now is going to open lower, according to the futures markets, about uh, 0.2% lower. In the commodities markets, gold is slightly higher, $1,969 an ounce. Uh, Brent crude oil also moving higher in Asian trading at $45.61 a barrel. Thanks very much for listening this morning. Do please stay tuned for Back Chat, Hugh Chiverson and Ada Wong after the news. The weather forecast, sunny periods, few showers. It's going to be very hot during the day, a maximum temperature of about 34 degrees. There is a very hot weather warning in force and it will continue to be very hot with winds in the next couple of days, isolated showers and thunderstorms. Temperature right now is 29 degrees, 80% relative humidity. 8.31 and a half. Samantha Butler has the half-hour news. Education sector lawmaker Ipkin Yun says it's dangerous for the government to intervene in what's being taught in schools after the education minister said it was factually incorrect for school books to suggest Hong Kong had a separation of powers between the executive, the legislative and the judiciary. Mr Ip says this goes against what most people believe, so the Education Bureau needs to support its claims. When the secretary came up with this kind of saying that, you know, there is no such separation of powers in the past and at present. It's quite contradictory to what people believe. So they actually have to give much more information or give arguments to support their claims. And more importantly, I think this is wrong that the government thinks that they know the truth. So they make use of that truth to ask people to teach according to their lines. Ms. Ip also said the government should provide financial help to kindergartens to clean their campuses after authorities announced students could return for face-to-face classes in about three weeks' time. The number of people who've tested positive for the coronavirus in the United States has passed the 6 million mark. The Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore says the U.S. has added a million more cases in less than a month. Just over 180,000 people have died from the virus. The United States has the highest number of infections and the worst fatalities in the world. But at a news briefing, the White House Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany said the country was coping well with the pandemic. We are encouraged to see a drop in cases, deaths, hospitalizations, and very encouraged that we have one of the lowest case fatality rates in the world. In fact, ours is 3.1%. EU and UK together is 10.5%. So we're encouraged that our therapeutics are working um, and saving lives. Shares in the video conferencing company Zoom have risen 5% to another record high as students continue to rely on the technology during the coronavirus pandemic. Here's the BBC's Michelle Fleury. After one of the most astounding earnings reports in early June, Zoom has done it again, blowing past expectations with its second quarter results. 
the video conferencing app reported a profit of $186 million on sales of $664 million. Key to that success is its ability to add paying customers, high-budget corporate clients versus those who use its services for free. Customer growth jumped 458% from this time last year. With many of us now working from home, Zoom has become one of the essential technology tools during the coronavirus pandemic. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Backchat. I'm Hugh Chiverton, your co-host today's Ada Wong. Ada, good morning to you. Good morning, Hugh. Today we're looking back first at last year's protests. What happened during that turbulent time? It doesn't really have a name. And what effect is it having today? Police arrested at least 12 people last night in Mongkok as large crowds of people gathered outside the Prince Edward station leaving flowers and sporadically chanting pro-independence slogans as they marked one year since officers stormed the station in search of anti-government protesters. Meanwhile, a new survey for Reuters suggests a growing majority of people support the pro-democracy movement's goals, but backing for the protest movement was a smaller 44%, with 33% against the pro-democracy movement. And a similar question a few months ago suggested more than 50% support. Well, one year on, what happened last year? How did anti-government protests change? How will they affect our future? After 9.15, we're going to be discussing the resignation and political achievements of Prime Minister of Japan, Shinzo Abe. We want to hear your thoughts. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. You can email us, backchat at rthk.hk, or you can call us and our tele- the phone number is 233-88266. We look forward to hearing from you, 233-88266. Joining us for the first part of the programme, we have with us now Avery Ng, Chairman of the League of Social Democrats, Professor Holok Sang, a Senior Research Fellow at the Pan Sutong Economic Policy Research Institute at Lingnan University, and Tom Grundy, who's Editor-in-Chief of Hong Kong Free Press. Uh, Tom Grundy, maybe we'll start with you. Good morning. Thanks for for, for joining us. Um, Thanks for having me. Uh, f- first of all, I mean, we haven't, even, as I said, we haven't even got a name for for what happened. We had an umbrella movement that got a kind of tag and it got a kind of unity. But as I say, what? How do you refer? What do you call what happened last year? <laughs> good, good question. Because we have to tag these things on our website as well. I suppose we call them the protests or the recent pro-democracy protests but um yeah they evolved and changed and and uh so much over the space of a year with the demands of course um morphing into wider calls for for democracy and and i think what's underemphasized perhaps is just how many parallels there were there are with recent protests in the u.s now in that they were very much um calls for for reform and uh, for accountability of the police um as well so um, one year on, what do you make of what happened last year, Tom? Um, well, I still feel we're on that sort of bullet train and it's hard to zoom out to, to understand kind of, kind of what happened. But of course, it all smashed directly into the, the, the COVID-19 situation. It's very difficult to get a reading as to how people may feel about the protest movement, whether they're going to be able to shore up numbers again for it to make a return after covid I think that's why the Reuters poll that you mentioned is quite important, because that at least can give some kind of temperature check or barometer as to how the city may be feeling in terms of what's happened since with the national security law and and the five demands of the protest movement. The thing is, those going out right now 
like particularly last night where you see this run around with police uh the stop and checks the cordons sort of giant pac-man map in mong kok um familiar scenes over recent weeks those going out when protest is effectively banned um are risking covid 19 fines of two thousand dollars uh potential unlawful assembly uh, arrest, um, maybe even rioting if the scene gets hairy, and new charges under the national security law that can carry anything up to life imprisonment. So, you know, they don't have the the sort of cover of numbers that the protesters did last year. And until COVID sort of disappears, and we possibly see approved protests um, where police give the green light, it's going to be very tough to see whether this protest movement or the anti-extradition movement, whatever you want to call it, um, is, is, still, is still in full swing. Do you think there is still kind of a mass unhappiness as well? Uh, because it started off last year with those massive marches, the largest in, in Hong Kong history, uh, and then it you know, ended it differently. But is there still that mass discontent, that mass unhappiness at the state of Hong Kong? Or is it increased or decreased? How, does it, how do we stand, do you think? Well, first, I think we should always never underestimate that there are people who support the government, national security law, etc. But um, I do get the feeling that um, things, things feel kind of similar to how they did after the umbrella movement, where, where you get the sense that um, there is a lot of fatigue, exhaustion, um, fragmentation uh, among the movement, and, and uh, it doesn't feel like there's going to be any scenes of massive or dis- disobedience or huge one, two million person protests again. Um, but I also recall that that was somewhat of a trap in that uh, of thought, because although we were seeing the same faces of protests for, for, for four or five years, um, the anger was, was still there, bringing underneath. As you suggest, there is um, deep unhappiness, as we can see from this uh, Pori Reuters poll, um, with 60% uh, opposed to the security law. Um, how Hong Kongers will perhaps innovate again to work around these new restrictions, certainly on street protests, um, whether that be the yellow economy or at the ballot box, um, remains to be seen. But uh, it's not going to be happening anytime soon when COVID's still going and the elections have, have been postponed. So I hesitate to make predictions, to be honest, because kind of tired of being wrong. I wouldn't underestimate uh, what the movement will do. Right. Um, going back to the Reuters poll, um, it, it does look like that backing, uh, those people backing the protest movement um, has gone down. It is a smaller 44% now. Well, what do you make of these numbers? Uh, why is there a, a decrease in the support? I, I think um, there, there was fatigue generally uh, after PolyU going onwards. It was felt that um, police from November up until now have had their upper hand. They come out in force. And these uh, more traditional methods of hitting the street kind of not working. Also, there is that sort of stubbornness, lion rock spirit when it comes to, uh, you know, the demands, many of whom, many activists we speak to, at least Democrats, know that they cannot win. There's this sense of uh, scorched earth or burn with us and um, or set an example, you know, for the rest of the world. Um, so there is, I guess, this cynicism. Um, about the demands and the movement. But having said all that, um, this poll did also show that the, the growing majority of people support the pro-democracy movement's broader aims. 
Okay. Uh, an email from Anthony who says, when more protesters killed in the Prince Edward station have one by one resurrected, either in the court pleading guilty of rioting or in the UK seeking asylum, why does Tom and RTHK still point at the armed rioters who attacked passengers as protesters? Isn't it spreading falsehoods that warp perception to fuel the riots? That's, uh, that's from uh, Anthony. Uh, Tom Grundy, do you want to respond to that? Sounds bit wacky. I'm not sure when RTHK or HKFP has ever um, shown sides. I know that um, both outlets are fiercely impartial. And um, also referencing another wacky conspiracy theory about deaths in the station. Um, Factswire and others have debunked that. It's, it's complete nonsense and um, detracts, I think, from the real story there, which was plain for anyone to see re-watching the footage perhaps yesterday, which is that like it or not, the facts are there that the, the, the police um, went berserk in the station. We, we're not seeing the CCTV, um, and it's probably a welcome distraction uh, for the authorities and the police that people think that there were deaths in the station. Uh, uh, yeah, Anthony's referring to uh, some of the, what we call, what RTHK calls protesters, attacking passengers. I wasn't aware of that, with, uh, and they were, they, they were armed and they attacked passengers. Oh, I didn't know. Do, do, Tom, do, do you recall that happening? No, I don't know how such people get questions in. It's um, not what any of the footage shows. Um, there is some footage from much earlier in the night of um, some arguments on the train and, and some men lashing out at what could be passengers or protesters. But clearly the story of August 31st um, is police behaviour and, and uh, alleged misconduct. Um, whether some of the pro-Beijing camp want to paint in a different way or some in the pro-democracy camp want to paint a different way about um, his supposed death. The, the, the truth is um, what happened that night is that the police went in um, wielding batons and, and pepper spray and used uh, disproportionate force, I think, by, by any measure. Mm. Uh, Herlock Sang, good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you very much indeed for, for joining us. When, when you look at the pictures of, uh, of the last year, uh, the mass demonstrations in particular at the beginning, uh, it's like it's another world. It's like it happened in another century in a, in a place in a different galaxy uh, almost. It's almost unrecognisable from, from the Hong Kong of today. What, what are your thoughts uh, now, uh, with a little bit of distance, on, on what happened in 2019 and... and, and uh, uh, and what impact is it having today, do you think? I think uh, uh, what uh, the protesters did last year uh, was undermining uh, Beijing's trust in Hong Kong, and, and that is uh, very uh, bad for Hong Kong. And uh, uh, in the end, as we all witnessed, uh, Beijing had introduced this uh, national security law Hong, uh, for Hong Kong, and um, that was uh, actually a, a direct result of those uh, uh, protests. And, uh, and of course, it's not just protests as such, you know, because the protests were often followed uh, with riots and uh, uh, rampage on, on public facilities and, and shops and so on. And you also get people hurt and even killed. So... Um, uh, Beijing is seeing that this is a direct threat, you know, because uh, as you are aware, some uh, 
call themselves separatists. You know, secession secession is not something that's uh, that's in hiding. It's uh, coming out, and so Beijing had to uh, make this move, which uh, of course is uh, to the uh, uh, exactly the opposite of what uh, the protesters had wanted. You see, so you see um, early in. Uh, 2013, you know, I, I, I was in a forum, you know, with uh, people looking at uh, political reform, and I had uh, suggested that it's important for Hong Kong people to reassure Beijing, you know, that 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 uh, we will follow uh, all the terms in the basic law, and I, and uh, elect uh, the chief executive according to the terms uh, as required in the basic law. But I was booed. You see, and the fact is that, um, un- un- unfortunately, you know, because uh, people are asking for so-called uh, civil nomination, bypassing the nominee nominee committee, and uh, bypassing the basic law, you, you know, and there some some people even burn the basic law and so on. You see, so so Beijing had to do something that is exactly the opposite of what the protesters had wanted, and of course they they have grown, um, perhaps they, they're now aware that this uh, movement is not leading anywhere. So, so some of those protesters uh, um, have uh, had this uh, short uh, uh, um, fatigue, you know, and uh, uh, seeing that this is not, not going anywhere. So, so, so they, they are not so responsive to calls of you said the protest created a mistrust of, of Beijing. Uh, did they, or, or did they reflect, or, or both, uh, or neither? Because um, a lot of people would say that actually it was just, there was just there was that existing mistrust uh, of Beijing, and the uh, the uh, yeah, Hong Kong government misjudged it when they tried to introduce the anti-extradition bill. So it didn't create any mistrust. It was merely reflecting what was already there. Well, the extradition bill was uh, was the uh, misrepresented, you know, by by some of those protesters. And I've seen videos, you know, uh, suggesting that people talking about something uh, uh, that may not be in agreement with Beijing would be actually uh, caught and extradited to uh, to to the mainland. You know, that sort of thing is, you know, it's a very professional short video, and I was really shocked, you know, because it was a gross representation of the contents. And I, I understand that the, the, uh, the, the, uh, the amendment bill was actually modeled after the, uh, the, the UN framework, you know, for this sort of, uh, of law. And so people can talk about it, you know, but, but I, I had also warned the, the government, you know, saying that uh, people's uh, worries are real and you have to address those worries and have to introduce a mechanism to arrest those worries. But the, the government did not respond, you see. So I was also very frustrated with that. Um, but on, on the role of the government, um, surely the Hong Kong government has also undermined uh, Beijing's trust. Um, you know, Beijing did not think that, um, you know, our local government can handle these situations. And therefore, there's the national security law now being enacted. Yeah. Um, yes, as I said, uh, the the government could have done things. You know, I had suggested uh, um, uh, things, and also uh, uh, Professor Albert Chen had also suggested other uh, uh, or 
alternatives of uh, of uh, um, of uh, in, uh, increasing um, uh, people uh, uh, people's worries. You see, but uh, the, the government didn't respond. You see, and if the government had responded, you know, those uh, 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 unfortunate things uh, that fo- that fo- followed wouldn't have happened. You see, so uh, in a sense, you're quite right. You know, if if the SAO government had done uh, better, then Beijing wouldn't have needed, you know, to to do it. And uh, and of course, uh, the the the, the uh, another fact is that after 23 years, you see, Article 23, you know, that was uh, something that that uh, the SAO government is supposed to to uh, to do and enact the the the, the laws. Um, for, uh, you know, uh, to implement Article uh, 23, but it never happened. You see, so uh, uh, it's everybody's responsibility, I would say, you know, or the legislators, the government, and the public. You see, every, everybody is responsible to some extent, you know, because we really should have uh, taken that into our own hands and make, and, and make sure that the Article 23 is in accordance with, you know, uh, um, the prevailing uh, 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 law and the, um, the the values and uh, what what we expect in Hong Kong. We we could have done that, but but we just uh, uh, um, uh, put it aside altogether, you know, for twenty three years. One thing is that it it started off, uh, yeah, aimed at the anti extradition legislation. Uh, aimed against the extradition legislation, but then it turned into a, a, a an anti-police thing, didn't it? And the five demands are largely concerned with with, with yeah. the police, and it turned into a conflict between protesters and and, and police, uh, and that added a lot of the fuel. What's the legacy of that? Do you think? Do you think that will wear off? Do you think that will stay around? How does that get resolved? That kind of uh, conflict? well, the police certainly has to rebuild its. Uh, 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 peop- uh, uh, the uh, public trust. It is um, very unfortunate, you know, because uh, whenever you have clashes like this sort of thing, you get uh, a dissatisfaction with uh, 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 police b- brutality anywhere, from France to to America to to Hong Kong to to anywhere. You see, Chile, anywhere. You you you, you can think of, you know, when there are uh, clashes like this, you know, so. So um, the police has yeah. to do something. The police has to, has, to do, has, has to do something, and of course, there certainly I, I'm pretty sure there are some some cases of uh, uh, unnecessary police violence. Uh, uh, um, it, it's uh, you know because police officers are also human, you know, and uh, just like uh, a lot of the protesters uh, uh, got uh, uh, really um, uh, too. Uh, using excessive violence, and, you know, they 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 shouldn't have done this, they shouldn't have done that, and so on. But but they've done it. You see, the the protesters on the side of protesters too, and uh, on the side of the police officers too. You see, so so uh, the fact that uh, we are talking about the tens of thousands of of people, uh, and uh, so many police officers, of course, there are some 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 who who didn't do do the right thing. Mm. But one year on, you know, according to a recent Reuters uh, poll, support for the request for an independent commission of inquiry is still yes, on I've the rise. Asked, I've, asked, I've been asking for that. Um, for, you know, for, it is now months. four percentage points, up to seventy percent. Yes, I've been. 
asking for that all the time. But, but the government is not doing anything to bring closure, you know, of all this anger. Yeah, yeah that, that's something that, I, that frustrated me. And, and, and I, uh, to some extent, I understand the concern, you know, because they, they, they are worried that, uh, uh, that even though it's a so-called independent uh, uh, commission, but uh, um, uh, can you really get independent people, you know, with uh, total independence, you know, looking at, at, at the facts, you know, see? So there's a lot of, uh, of uh, um, concern and worries, and, and, uh, uh, and that, that explains why, you know, but I, I still call for, for independent commission to, to clarify everything, you know, just not, not just looking at, 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 uh, at police uh, improper in uh, behavior, but also the, uh, what is really behind the entire movement and so on. They did the whole thing. So, so that's something. That's something that um, I understand. Many uh, so-called pro-establishment uh, uh, camp people also have asked. You see, but uh, um, for Carrie Lam, I think they, they, uh, she is worried about undermining uh, police uh, um, solidarity. You know, because uh, 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 at the time, you know, when when uh, they are under a lot of stress. You don't really want to uh, uh, make them feel disheart- uh, disheartened, you know, because they, the police are also worried that the independent, independent commission may not be really that independent. See, so it's really difficult. Mm. Uh, Ng, the chair of the League of Social Democrats, is with us as, uh, as well. Mr. Ng, good morning to you, and, and thanks for joining us. Um, look, looking at the looking at the pictures, as I say, and thinking back over uh, what happened a year ago, and thinking also with that Reuters. Uh, survey which suggested that uh, fewer people support last year's protests now. Uh, do you, is there a case that it started off with a kind of naivety, I mean a dangerous naivety, and ended very sourly in all this violence and, and, and hatred and division uh, and so on, that uh, uh, overall it was something to be very much regretted? Uh, no, I disagree to that. Uh, uh, first of all, from the beginning of the movement, I, I don't think it's uh, to do anything to do with naivety, but to do with the clear understanding of the threat of uh, the CCP's tampering with uh, Hong Kong's affair to the point where they're introducing this uh, extradition bill, and and that's why there were what, two million people out of seven million people marching on the street peacefully. Now, obviously, the the whole uh, movement uh, has turned, uh, uh, turned, turned, turned various ways uh, over the, the course of past years in response to the lack of action by Carrie Lam and the increased police brutality uh, by the police and to the uh, increased tampering of Hong Kong's affair by the CCP uh, with the introduction of the national security law. Now, uh, uh, having said that, uh, if you look at the Reuters uh, opinion poll, you know, there's uh, a lot of reason why, right? Uh, but my suspect is uh, there's the, the small uh, decrease of the number of people in support of the movement uh, in general uh, can attribute to the increased uh, cynicism, uh, like Tom Wendy said, uh, not unlike uh, what happened post-umbrella movement, uh, where those people are not switching side and in support of the government, but in fact, uh, believing that there's nothing more that 
they can do or nothing more the uh, Democrats can do, uh, especially uh, with the introduction of the national security law. Um, now, uh, how can we you know, move beyond whatever happened past year uh, as a Hong Kong in you know, uh, you know, as a city in general, uh, is again to have a uh, you know, uh, independent uh, commission of inquiries on police brutality and to the wider movement and the whole saga in general, uh, as well as initiating a genuine political reform in Hong Kong to have a fair political participation. Otherwise, uh, that we do not have any civilized mechanism to resolve uh, any political uh, issues in Hong Kong. But sadly, I have to say, uh, we are not seeing that happening, uh, especially with the uh, national security law. And what happened last year is not just only on the surface where where you know, we see protests or even clashes. We are seeing a complete breakdown of trust in the fundamental institution of Hong Kong, including you know, the rule of law, uh, to the point where you know, very recently, uh, with the arrest of uh, Lam Chen Ting, uh, uh, the, the one who's been attacked in Yunong uh, MTR station and now being charged for rioting, uh, that 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 spells, uh, and and that that shows how frustrated Hong Kong uh, is, okay. and because of the uh, COVID nineteen and Carrie Lam's uh, use or the abuse of uh, COVID nineteen as an excuse uh, to ban all gathering or protest to right. the point where uh, you know if four people are just protesting. Okay, we we we've got to, we've got to take a break, um, Avery. Right. We're, we're going to continue uh, after the news at nine. Say goodbye for the moment to Ho Lok Sang. Thank you very much indeed for joining us once again, Professor Ho from uh, Lingnan University, and uh, Tom Grundy, editor in chief of the Hong Kong Free Press. Thank you both very much indeed. The weather briefly before the news. Uh, we're also going to be talking about uh, Shinzo Abe later. Sunny periods and a few showers. Very hot. Temperatures up to thirty-four degrees, twenty-nine degrees now. Humidity is at eighty percent. Highway. He was heading towards the airport shortly before 10 pm when he crashed into another vehicle. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome back. This is Bank Chat on a Tuesday morning with Ada Wong and me, Hugh Chiverton. We're talking about last year's uh, protests, uh, basically, uh, inspired by a, a recent poll of uh, attitudes, public attitudes, towards the events of uh, last year and also to aspects of political reform. Uh, and also uh, marking one uh, events yesterday, marking uh, one year since the attacks and the fight in Prince Edward Station. We have with us Avery Ng, who's chairman of the League of Social Democrats. Later, we're going to be talking about uh, Shinzo Abe, the longest serving Japanese Prime Minister in their history, uh, I think. We'll be talking about uh, his uh, successes uh, and failures and the implications of his uh, resignation. If you want to comment, you want to join in, you want to talk to our guests, uh, call in. 233-88266 is the number, or you can go to our Facebook page, Bankchat and RTHK Radio 3, or you can email bankchat at rthk.hk and we'll read out your messages, uh, though we may edit for length and relevance. 
uh, some thoughts. Uh, maybe we'll start on so, some other issues. Uh, a, a couple on the question of uh, separation of powers, uh, which is uh, uh, in the news. Uh, Bowen says, uh, it's distressing to hear someone as senior as the Secretary for Education harping on there being no separation of powers in Hong Kong. Every time the Chief Executive affirms that the judiciary is independent in the city, she's acknowledging there is some form of separation of powers. Every time LegCo debate seeks to amend and votes on a government bill, that again is an affirmation of that phenomenon. Nobody's saying there is absolute separation of powers here. That is uh, from uh, Bowen. Uh, and uh, Andy says, Education Secretary Kevin Young says there is no separation of powers in Hong Kong and that school textbooks should not suggest that there is. Exactly the same as Regina Rip on Backchat last week. Are they reading from the same script? This would make a good subject for your programme. Andy, we're on it already, actually. We're trying to get Regina Rip to, uh, to come back to talk about the topic. I think it's a, an interesting one. Uh, related to today's discussion, uh, Matthew says, I really don't know exactly what happened at Prince Edward station on august the 31st last year and whether anyone died or not that's the problem in a city with the government accountable to the people and appropriate checks and balances on power there would have already been a detailed public inquiry to independently establish the facts not here instead we have the police force and other self-serving pro-authoritarian cheerleaders rewriting the history of events like this and the pro-government gangster attacks on july the 21st in yuan long and uh, TC says the biggest change in the anti-government protest is the COVID pandemic. The government is using gathering bans to discourage protest. I'd argue that the NSL had minimal effect on protest. The violent behaviour in the protests are already punishable by existing laws. And TC says whenever the pandemic is over, whenever that is, I'd be very disappointed if Hong Kongers don't return to the streets due to protest fatigue. In France, the Yellow Vest movement has gone on since November 2018. Uh, that is uh, from uh, TC. Uh, and um, Bowen says, uh, looking ahead, the best approach for those on both sides of the political divide is to not is to do not a great deal. Certainly further attempts at constitutional reform should cease. Uh, these will only create more animosity. But both sides need to revise their priorities and policies as the root cause of Hong Kong's problems is not its political system per se, but Beijing's policy towards the city as has been implemented by the SAR government. Full democracy for the election of the CE is most unlikely to be possible in the near future and the most the pandems can hope for is that Beijing will leave Hong Kong alone, not that it that is likely. Beijing should realise that its policy of rolling back the terms of the joint declaration and erasing Hong Kong's identity has been an unmitigated disaster. It has made huge numbers of pragmatic people deeply resentful of Beijing, threatened to destroy Hong Kong's usefulness as an international city, and critically widened China's rift with major Western countries. That policy has no upside to it. China's policy towards Hong Kong is inseparable from her policy towards the West. If she wishes to use the city as an interface with the West, on that premise she needs to be a more sensitive and sensible policy towards Hong Kong. That is from Bowen. Um, Avery, mm, what, what about the the internationalisation of what happened last year? We haven't really really touched on that. Uh, the way that uh, America and the West became very involved in that, and that has been, that's only escalated, hasn't it? That's mushroomed since uh, the beginning of, of this year, with Trump becoming very hostile and with the, with the uh, sanctions uh, and so on. It's kind of out of our hands now, isn't it, really? This is, we're, we're, we're 
you know, it's we're now part of a, a discussion, a, a dispute, and a conflict between Beijing and, and Washington. Uh, well, the, the fact is, uh, the the harsh fact is, uh, yes, it's true uh, with uh, the way of geopolitics and the way it works. Um, you know, what will happen to Hong Kong? Uh, you know the, the critical decisions uh, is actually out of Hong Kong people's hands. Uh, it's uh, uh, now between uh, these uh, world superpowers, and we uh, we we sort of caught in between. Uh, but having said that, uh, I still need to tell the people of Hong Kong that do not be cynical. Uh, I mean, the world only pay attention to Hong Kong, uh, not just because we are international financial center, but because of the. Uh, uh, endurance and the uh, solidarity of Hong Kong people in the fight for our core value, our, our democracy and freedom. And it was the people of Hong Kong who showed up on the street uh, for the world to uh, took us uh, took notice in the first place. Um, now, uh, it, it's sad that uh, you know, in any important uh, event in Hong Kong's history, it somehow seems that Hong Kong people is uh, is not that much of uh, involved from drafting of the uh, basic law to to the lack of election in, in uh, of CE. Um, but uh, going back to the the protest or the, or the future of Hong Kong, um, uh, it's sad to say that uh, I believe that the worst is yet to come uh, because with the national interest, uh, the international national security law and the Iron Fist. Uh, uh, policy uh, by Xi Jinping uh, towards Hong Kong. Um, now, obviously, um, with the arrest of uh, Lam Chating, uh, Ting, it is not a, we cannot consider it as an isolated case of, oh, just another arrest of a Lesko member. But that case in particular uh, tells people that uh, the regime is basically will rewrite the history of Hong Kong and will rewrite the history of whatever happened last year. Uh, and together with you know, the recent discussion of this, uh, whether there's a separation of power in Hong Kong, basically it paves, the, uh, the CCP is paving the way uh, to basically destroy the fundamental uh, structure of Hong Kong uh, and, and, and to have the court, uh, the law, uh, the LegCo, as well as the executive branch to work together, as Xi Jinping has, has always wanted, uh, to answer for, uh, for the, the Beijing government instead of the Hong Kong people. Uh, but still, uh, I, I think and I still believe that after the uh, COVID-19 has uh, somehow uh, resolved, uh, uh, and once uh, Carrie Lam and the police do not have any other excuse uh, to stop uh, you know, peaceful protests, I believe that millions of people uh, Hong Kong will, will, will come back on the street. Um, Avery, uh, on one hand, you tell Hong Kong people not to be cynical, but then um, you painted a very grim picture of um, yeah. you know the the worst things that are coming. Uh, so, yeah. what what would you tell the younger people who are really frustrated and deeply resentful of well, both Beijing and our local government? And on the, I know that you know for those who can leave Hong Kong, they are trying to leave Hong Kong. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, there's, there's, uh, this quote um, that Mandela said, um, it always seems impossible until it's done. 
and we, 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 especially for the young people, we cannot lose uh, hope uh, in the face of uh, in the in the face of uh, darkness and in the face of this uh, absurdity in Hong Kong. Um, uh, and remember whatever happened you know, back in Umbrella Movement. Uh, Hong Kong people came in solidarity for political reform. You know, uh, realistically, we failed to achieve what we wanted, and hence the, the few years of uh, you know, a low point and cynicism and helpless, helplessness. But that did, that did not solve anything. Uh, but in fact, uh, it just kept the anger and the uh, and the dissatisfaction brewing underneath, and and last year uh, with the extradition bill, people finally realised that you know, we cannot just sit around, uh, you know, you know, bitching about it or, or, or being cynical. We have to do something about it, despite the the, 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 the low possibility of uh, ever uh, uh, mm. be, being successful. Uh, and that's why we return to the street. Uh, and I think it. Uh, now is another te- another test for for us and then for the, for the younger generation to stay put uh, to keep on fighting uh, you know, for, in, in in whatever ways that we can uh, to protect ourselves and and to endure. Okay, and well, to the set truth. All right, here's, here's an email from Andrew F. who says Avery himself is exactly the reason why that Reuters survey came out the way it did. The last time he was on back chat. When asked to unequivocally condemn a Hong Kong citizen being set on fire, he casually answered, nope. It's on tape on the podcast, so he can't deny it. Most Hong Kong people, including people who support democracy, like me, don't think like him. Avery and people like him are the reason people soured on the movement. I don't understand the, 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 the logic and reason uh, behind it. Um no. Well, I think it's that people were sickened by the violence. People were put off, or put off the cause by the by, no, by no, the no, bloodshed, no. by burning somebody alive. No, re- remember those are. Well, it's not like, hard to understand. More, uh, yeah, the, the, those incidents uh, cannot represent the the whole wider movement. And remember uh, the reason, the initial reason why uh, Carrie Lam, uh, you know, delay. Uh, uh, the, the extradition bill in the first place was because of the two million people peacefully march on the street. Um, and the, the, this, uh, this increase of violence or even isolated incidents of, uh, of uh, extreme uh, actions by uh, you know, some, some, some uh, protesters is, uh, is uh, caused by the inaction of uh, Carrie Lam and the increased brutality uh, uh, from from the police, um, but but we have to look at the whole movement in general and and how we can progress, you know, from this point onwards, right? Uh, so I still believe in um, uh, non-violence, uh, civil disobedience, and that is why uh, even after the police uh, refuse uh, permission for for protest, uh, we we still came out and lead the way, and and hence. Uh, many of us, including Martin Lee and Margaret, uh, is now being charged in, uh, in, in court. And now going back to uh, you know, last year's uh, police brutality, I have to uh, stress uh, one thing, and the abuse of their power, I have to stress one thing. Uh, for the course of last year, uh, near close to 10,000 people were arrested. Uh, and of those 10,000, uh, around 2,000 has been charged and put through to court. 
Now, that, if you look at the number the other way around, that means there's 8,000 people who's been arrested and, and for, for, for around a year and not been charged at all. And you know, close to 8,000 has been uh, basically let go without any charges, without conditions. Uh, that shows the, 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 you know, the basic the abuse of uh, police power in just arresting random people on the streets. Uh, and, and let alone for the fact that you know, one year onwards, some of these court cases have already been you know, progressed. And you know, some of those uh, have even been acquitted because there, there were no, no, no legal grounds at all. Um, so by the looks of it, uh, clearly there's a... Uh, the, even the DOJ has been abusing uh, their prosecution power in prosecuting basically innocent people. Uh, now, I'm not saying that you know, all protesters are innocent and not breaking the law. I'm not saying that. But clearly, there's this abuse of, uh, of power by the DOJ and, and the police. And, and, and what I said before in that the worst is yet to come is based on that. The behavior of the DOJ, Carrie Lam, as well as the police force, I, I, I still don't see that uh, they are correcting themselves. I, I see that there's this increased abuse of their, their power. And that is one of the very reasons why we have to endure and keep on fighting. Um, Avery, uh, I mean, among your circle, uh, are people leaving Hong Kong? Are they getting impatient? Are they getting too angry um, to see, you know, that Hong Kong becomes very strange and is not the usual Hong Kong that they know? No, but the, what is usual Hong Kong? I mean, Hong Kong has been, it's just been growing uh, more and more absurd. Uh, now, obviously, uh, there's talks of, you know, People from different circles of, of you know, uh, leaving Hong Kong, abandoning Hong Kong, migrating overseas. But that, that's just the talks. Uh, you know, the reality is, the majority of Hong Kong people want to stay in Hong Kong as their home. Or you know, for the fact that many people who may wish to leave Hong Kong but could not because of financial and economic reasons. Uh, so. You know, leaving Hong Kong is, you know, obviously a personal choice. Um, there's nothing wrong with it, um, but it, uh, but for Hong Kong to to progress and success, uh, you know, we, we cannot just uh, think think that way. And and you know, we should do our best uh, to 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 stay put. Um, okay. Now, but 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 again, uh, whether leaving Hong Kong or not uh, is an entirely personal uh, choices. Okay, well, Avering, Chairman of the League of Social Democrats, thanks very much indeed for joining us this morning. Just a couple of messages. GT says, why do these idiots insist on saying two million on the streets last year when it was clear that it would be impossible to have more than half a million? Get your facts right. That's from uh, GT. Uh, thanks very much indeed for that comment. Thank you to uh, Avering and to uh, other guests. Uh, this morning. Uh, Jay says, I would just like to give a message to the Education Bureau. They might not be aware. Many of us are paying over $10,000 a year in school books, but they've decided to do a lot of e-classes on the computer. I don't dispute this is a bad idea. 
but I do not see why we can't do this the easy way. The teachers give us a simple page on WhatsApp with which pages to do in the school book so that kindergarten and primary schools can get on and do the work without using a computer. The Education Bureau was also not aware that it costs over $400 a month for your internet and thousands for your computer and printer, of which the $10,000 handout goes absolutely nowhere. That is from Jay. Thank you very much indeed for those comments and for all the uh, comments from uh, listeners. Uh, finally today, we wanted to turn to uh, Japan and uh, the announcement on uh, Friday, of course, that the Prime Minister, Shinzo Abe, would resign after poor health, after a uh, period, a record uh, seven years and eight months uh, in office as the country's longest-serving Prime Minister. Uh, for some uh, thoughts and uh, reactions, we're joined now by Amy Catalanic, who's Assistant Professor of Politics at New York University. Good morning to you, or good day to you, and thank you very much indeed for, for, for joining us now. First of all, I mean, how much was a surprise was this, uh, uh, Abe leaving in this way? So um, I think we did have some indication that he, he hasn't been well for a little while. Uh, the past couple of months, he's been sort of out of the the public spotlight a little bit more than usual and there were a few hospital visits. So I think over the last couple of weeks there was sort of speculation mounting that he may be he may be resigning. Um, he also, as um, many of your listeners may know, he was Prime Minister before uh, from 2006 to 2007 and at that time he also had a, he had an illness uh, related, sort of he had an illness and that's why he resigned then. So maybe it was in the back of the mind of the public of Japan that this might happen again. However, I do. I think the, the, there are some interesting elements to the timing of the resignation, um, which I'm happy to, to discuss if you're interested. Yeah, please go ahead. Yeah. So, um, in uh, to elect a new leader of uh, Japan's Liberal Democratic Party, there are a couple of different ways the election can be held, and I think Abe has uh, sort of made it clear that he favours there's a particular there's a couple of candidates he favours as uh, to be the next leader. And there's a particular candidate, Ishiba Shigeru, that he does not favour uh, to, be, to be the next leader. And I, I suspect that there could, be, there could have been a strategic element. I think he perhaps delayed the um, timing of the resignation to, to make it difficult for the party to hold an election that gives the rank-and-file party members the right to vote. Uh, because if you have an election where the rank-and-file are voting, they're going to choose, they're very likely... Uh, to throw their support behind the candidate that the Prime Minister is least in favour of, Ishiba Shigeru. Um, and by resigning this sort of late in the day, um, you sort of, it, there could have been a strategic element there to make a second type of election possible. And that type of election is to keep the votes in the hands of the Diet members, which uh, the Prime Minister may think would lead to people supporting the candidates, the type of candidates, one in particular that he favours. So I've been thinking a lot about the timing of his resignation. I think it's a little, it's a little curious. Right. Um, uh, some critics are saying that Mr. Abe is still in power because of a weak and uninspiring opposition. Um, what, what, what do you think his legacy is, apart from being the longest-serving prime minister? So I think the legacy is actually the first thing that you that you just mentioned. I think he's really presided over. Uh, an innovating and decimation, really, of the opposition uh, in Japan now. And we, we sort of, when you read about ambitions or you read a lot about his policy accomplishments, or um, even if you say, even if people, people have also talked about how he's only achieved mixed results in terms of his uh, various policy goals. But I think the biggest legacy is how he's, he's really managed to centralise 
power within his party, the Liberal Democratic Party, and he's totally decimated uh, the opposition. So in Japan now, there are a number of opposition parties. Um, not, none of them have more than a quarter support that the LDP has. So we're sort of under Abe Shinzo. Um, we can, I can talk about the mechanics of why I think that's happened. Um, but he's really made Japanese politics back into where the LDP is the only game in town. And I think that is by far a bigger legacy. How long it lasts is another question, but I think that's a bigger legacy than any of his, any of his policy goals. He did lend his name to, uh, you know, to a, to a whole kind of a school of uh, economics, and the economics, uh, and so on. Is is that something that will last? Yeah, I think economics is calling it a school of economics is uh, generous uh, okay. <laughs> to the prime minister. Um, but yeah, he had he had a three pronged strategy for the economy, um, but the strategy that that sort of portrayed it very well, but it actually it hasn't really been successful. They did manage to increase Japan's GDP. There were some gains there. But the goal of Abenomics was to pull Japan out of deflation, which it had been experiencing for a really long time. It had a nice sort of set of policy like fiscal stimulus, monetary easing, some structural reforms. They wanted to increase uh, sort of deflation, managed to get it to 2%. And this just didn't, this didn't work at all. Um, and now with COVID, uh, the economy has shrunk again and it's sort of wiped out the gains that Abenomics uh, sort of originally intended to realise. So I don't think, I think um, some, he has made some, some, like, some major, well, in Japan, not major. Uh, I would argue they're a little less major in the security realm um, that, that I'm happy to, I don't know if your listeners are interested in security policy. That's sort of my my main area. Yeah, well, certainly we are because, of course, yeah, I mean, foreign foreign policy decisions, of course, are very important and uh, uh, to us in Hong Kong, and we're certainly aware of uh, Japan's stance and, and Japan's, you know, association with, with Trump and, and so on. What were the security points that you had in mind? So they, they achieved a really big... So under Abe, they achieved a big sort of change that the LDP as a party has wanted for quite some time until 2015, they decided that they were going to change the interpretation of Japan's pacifist constitution so that Japan can exercise collective self-defense, just like other nations. So this was a really big change for many years. Since the 1950s, Japan had interpreted the constitution to preclude Japan from being able to exercise collective self-defense, which means, you know, come to the aid of an ally under attack. Um, In 2015, they officially changed that interpretation. However... I would say that it's much less of a it's much, it's much more of a symbolic change than it's, that it, that's, than is always appreciated to be. So the the change said yes, Japan can now use force to defend other countries, but there have to be three conditions to, that have to be met in order for Japan to say defend a U.S. warship when it's under attack. There have to be three conditions, and these are actually the same three conditions that Japan always placed on its right to exercise individual self-defense. So this is sort of another big policy shift under Abe that I think it's been watered down and it didn't really achieve uh, all that the Prime Minister, I think, was hoping for when he when he took control in 2012. The, the three conditions are, are really substantial conditions, and there hasn't been an, an example where Japan has exercised collective self-defense in the last five years, partly because of these three conditions. Right. 
what about uh, on the in international front? Uh, what is his legacy? He, first of all, you know, he wants to prevent Trump, uh, Donald Trump, and uh, he was the first foreign leader to meet Donald Trump after the president's election. We remember that. And then um, he uh, was also trying to uh, keep ties uh, with uh, President Xi Jinping in China. Um, yes. What, what, what do you think of that? So one of his major accomplishments, I think, has been his ties with Trump and his relationship with Trump. And this really helped him raise, keep his support rate very high. Uh, keeping, as a prime minister in Japan, keeping your support rate high has not been an easy feat. Uh, they had, we had, Japan had six prime ministers of one year each before Abe came along, and most of those previous prime ministers, prime ministers were sort of ruined by support rates just dropping. So something kind of bad would happen early in their term as prime minister, or some kind of gaffe, or uh, Prime Minister Asso, for example, had some trouble reading kanji, reading the Chinese characters, and the media picked up on this and criticised them for it. So there were, there were things that happened in early, in earlier in the terms of many prime ministers to sort of decrease their support rates. But Prime Minister Abe, this didn't happen, and one of the, he was very good about using uh, Japan, his close ties with Trump, President Trump, and with the US to kind of keep Japanese uh, Japanese voters like have traditionally liked it when their leaders have have been close and had good relationships with the US president. Um, but you know there were again, I, I feel like I'm sort of talking negatively about about Shinzo Abe here, but he didn't, um, you know, he didn't manage to kind of stop the U.S. from leaving uh, the TPP. He did manage to resurrect uh, his own version of the TPP, TPP 11, without the United States. But I think his relationship with Trump has been really for looks only, and it didn't really achieve sort of policies that benefit Japan in the international arena. Hmm. Would you expect Japan to move closer to China uh, after Abe's departure? So I think um, we're going to see more of the same mm -hmm. uh, from the next from the next leader. Um, we might see the. I, mean, I think I think Japan is treading a very fine line between China and between uh, the United States, and I think we'll see more sort of closing up to the United States. And I don't think we'll be seeing any kind of brand new vision or goal as to how to deal with China. Okay. Well, Emmy Kavlanik, Assistant Professor of Politics at New York University. Many thanks for, for joining us today. We're, we're very grateful. Uh, Ada, thank you very much indeed. Let's just finish with a couple more comments uh, from uh, listeners. Uh, Umesh says on the two million myth i thought that myth was debunked by independent people can't believe that even today these idiots still claim two million were in that march and then the so-called dead from prince edward show up alive and well in the uk pathetic tools if they want changes in hong kong they got to man up and show some shred of honesty instead of being just like lamb curry's administration that comes from uh umesh and Bowen says, Avery may be right that people should not become cynical. By the same token, he has to be conscious of the costs of pockets of the population continuing to be rednecks. What he said about the likelihood of lots of people coming out to protest again after COVID has subsided, however, is something Beijing cannot ignore. Even if they don't come out immediately, there will still be considerable anger simmering, waiting for another event to make things come to a head again, which is Beijing's policy towards Hong Kong must become sensitive and sensible. That is from Bowen. Bowen, thank you very much indeed uh, for those messages. Uh, sorry, and uh, one more comment. 
Uh, this is from uh, Alan, who says, uh, yet again, you read out the why don't you condemn the violence letter. You don't demand that every pro-government guest condemn police violence, yet you always do it for pro-democratic guests. The police all work for the government. There is a chain of command. There is no chain of command for protest. No matter the Wu Mao say, it's all run by the Pentagon. This is from uh, Alan. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, the weather before we go, sunny periods and a few showers for today. Very hot. Temperatures up to about 34 degrees. Isolated thunderstorms Storms later, light to moderate westerly wind. There's a very hot weather warning now. 30 Celsius, relative humidity, 78%. Hi, I'm Lazy Lion. To fight this pandemic, don't hold gatherings or join large-scale activities. Event organizers should adopt contingency measures to postpone or cancel events or temporarily close facilities. The public should avoid crowded places as far as possible. Don't host or join gatherings with family and friends. Find an open space to stretch. Social distancing can help prevent the spread of COVID-19. These are the tips for you and me to prevent COVID-19. I'm 33, the news with Samantha Butler. Education sector lawmaker Ipkin Yun says it's dangerous for the government to intervene in what's being taught in schools after the education minister said it was factually incorrect for school books to suggest Hong Kong had a separation of powers between the executive, the legislative and the judiciary. Mr Ip says this goes against what most people believe, so the Education Bureau needs to support its claims. The number of people who've tested positive for coronavirus in the United States has passed the 6 million mark. The Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore says the U.S. added a million more cases in less than a month. And President Trump has attacked the Democratic candidate for the U.S. presidency, Joe Biden, saying his rival has been weak in the face of recent street protests. Earlier, Mr. Biden accused President Trump of stoking politically explosive violence and seeking to instill fear in America and being unable to control supporters acting like an armed militia. I'll have more news at 10 o'clock. It's time right now on Radio 3 to say good morning to Phil Whelan and his guests on The Morning Brew. Hello. 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 How are you? Not too bad at all. Good morning. Even the Hello. You never Facebook chat with me, Phil. Good morning. He's got the Tom and Jerry type violence. It's a great experience if you just want to get a bit of zen. On your radio and live online, this is The Morning Brew. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Tuesday. Morning Brew with me, Phil Whelan. Let's get stuck into it. Sometime after 10 today, Jared Watt's going to be with you for his weekly look at all the news from Aussie. And of course, he's got some great music too. We're off on location with Dr. Merrin Pierce after 11. Now, likely he's going to be on his favourite island. As today, we're going to welcome Lantau-based author and amazing artist, Sally Bunker. Now, if you're able to join us on Facebook Live, you'll be able to see some of the incredibly detailed work she's done in her latest book called Portraits of trees of Hong Kong and southern China. Beautiful colours. After 12, Morris is with us on the line from St Kilda in Melbourne. We're going to return to the old chestnut of the flying car today, as it seems the Japanese have made one that actually works. But how on earth, if you really think about it, could one of these things be part of our society? You know, loads of them, streets going the opposite